Hey everyone, this is Rob, and thank you for listening to This Developer's Life, episode number six. I'll get to that in just a second, but I had a few things I wanted to talk about. Number one, the show hit number one on all technical audio podcasts on iTunes this last week, which was awesome. Also a bit scary. We managed to peg the bandwidth at our ISP where I was hosting the audio downloads, and that brought some bandwidth overage charges. My ISP, as awesome as they are, decided to work with us and forgive it. And for that, many, many, many thanks to Maximum ASP, my ISP. I love them. Thank you so much. Uh, in addition, to help out with the costs going forward, we have two volunteers who stepped up to sponsor us. The first is Twilio, T-W-I-L-I-O, Twilio.com. If you need SMS or voice capabilities for your application, go check them out. John Sheehan at Twilio.com was good enough to help out with sponsoring uh, this episode. In addition, Umbraco, U-M-B-R-A-C-O, an open source .NET content management system, they are helping out as well. Do me a favor. Go check out their sites and services. They are bringing you this show today. Many thanks from Scott and myself to them. Now on with the show. In the last episode, This Developer's Life 1.0.5 called Home Run, I mentioned the idea of geek trading cards. I always thought that there would be computer people rookie cards, right? I would have like the, you know, the H. Edward Roberts creator of the Altair 8080 rookie card. Oh yeah, I've got Roberts rookie card, yeah. Him and, uh, and Gary Kildall, you know, who made CPM. I'll trade you an Adam Osborne and a Bill Gates for uh, a Lee Felsenstein, uh, you know, maker of the Osborne One, or, uh, you know, Clive Sinclair. You give me a Sinclair for an Andrew Kay, founder of K-Pro. Oh, really? Okay, I'll trade you a Steve Jobs rookie card for uh, Dan Bricklin. One of the clever things that I said was edited out by our illustrious editor, Rob Connery, always trying to keep the show tight. He edited it out. Now, since, you know, Rob, you know, does the editing of the show, he is the garage band and I am just part of the band. Uh, I was a little curious why that remark didn't make it into the show. Well, it's not like I was trying to censor you or anything. Well, here, I'll just play it. If you haven't heard of VisiCalc, you're a bad person. This is like the spreadsheet. This is the electronic spreadsheet. He wrote it. So I've actually used VisiCalc in the past, and I guess that makes me not a bad person. But the names on those geek trading cards, yeah, I knew a few of them. I mean, who doesn't know who Charles Petzold is? Uh, but some of them I didn't know. Uh, Lee Felsenstein, one of the great names that you dropped there. I, I don't know who Lee Felsenstein is. Tell me, please tell me that you knew who Dan Bricklin is. Well, yeah, okay, I know who Dan Bricklin is, but I only know him because of your show. I honestly didn't know the name before that. I mean, is that important? How can you be a how can you be a programmer and not know who these people are? I mean, it's like flying in an airplane without knowing who the Wright brothers are. Honestly, how much do you really need to know about these guys? I mean, what's come before? I mean, okay, so who started Compact? Do you know the name of the person who did the first Compact mini laptop computer? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, Compact was founded in 1982 uh, by Rob Canyon, um, Bill Murto, and Jim Harris, and then was you know purchased by Hewlett Packard in 2002. How do, you, how do you not know this? Well, I'm just saying, why do I need to? I mean, who needs to know that now? They're gone. I mean, other than a little bit of trivia, what's, who cares? 
All right, so let's skip ahead just a little bit. Scott and I got into a great discussion about, well, history and things that you need to know. And next thing you know, we're talking about abstraction. You know, my point was, what do I really need to know from the past in order to do my job today? Scott brought up a great point. He said, well, the past was where the abstraction was born. In other words, all the frameworks we use today abstract the things that were learned in the past, something I really hadn't thought about. So let's jump ahead to that part of the discussion. Okay, well, when does layers of abstraction become trivia? Or when they're, when they're buried so deep in the layers that it doesn't matter? I mean, there's all these commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill. Should we worry about the why, or should we just focus on the not killing part? Sure, but I mean, come on, that's like religion and cultural, socio-political, you know, stuff like that. They cause wars and hurt people. We're talking about computers and software. I mean, how do you, I mean, do you even want to repeat the craziness that came before if we think about this in a historical setting? I sure don't. But we are, we are repeating it. I mean, we're building giant mainframes again that do big batch processing, except we're calling them the cloud. You think that we're doing that because it's all 20-year-olds that are building the cloud? It's interesting to bring that up because a lot of people are likening the cloud to mainframe 2.0. Well, remember the guy who said uh, that there are at most a, uh, a there is at most a market for about five computers in the world, and here we are building five computers. You know who that was? No, I don't. Dan Bricklin. That was uh, Thomas J. Watson, and he was the president of IBM. He said. There is a market for about five computers. All right, so let, let's let's forget about those 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 five computers. Let's think about this in terms of people. We can look to the past, and we can look to the patterns, and we can look to the computers of the past. But why don't we try looking at the people of the past that are still around today, doing innovative things? People like Ward Cunningham, people like Dan Bricklin that we talked to last week, people like Charles Petzl. These people bridge yesterday and today. You've got the guy that wrote BusyCalc writing iPad applications. You've got the guy that invented the wiki who's working on sensor arrays in his home. You've got the guy who wrote programming Windows 3.1 who's now writing Windows Phone 7 applications. These people made history and continue to, to build the future. Uh, I'm talking in my normal voice. How loud am I now? That's perfect. So I was thinking I would go talk to Ward Cunningham. Maybe you've heard about the idea of a wiki. Well, he's the guy that invented the wiki. You ever wish you had like a like a crazy old uncle, but instead of the kind that took you fishing all the time, they would take you down into like the cave and show you how to like burn things and uh, do physics experiments. This is like what Ward's house is like. You come in and you immediately know that there's electronic parts being shipped to and from. And he says, let's go downstairs into the workshop. You go down to the workshop, and it's like this wonderful episode of Hoarders, but not the bad hoarders where they hold all sorts of things that they should have thrown away. This is the good kind of hoarders where you've got uh, 50 years of computing history in here, and there's a literally a power book next to a brand new Mac and a Windows machine next to an oscilloscope. He's got 50 projects all running at the same time. And you ask him, why is he doing it? And he says, well, I want to understand the whole stack. 
So I try to think of the smartest thing I could ask. I mean, this guy's got a master's degree from Purdue and I went to a community college. So I asked him, what do I need to know? Do I have to understand a Turing machine in order to, to write business software? Well, I, I think clearly not because there's a lot of business applications written by people who don't understand Turing machines. But there is something that happens to you as a person uh, in terms of stroking your curiosity when you discover that you can understand a Turing machine and understand why a Turing machine has something. Not a lot, maybe, but something to say about a business application. And that, that something could come in handy sometime. Ward makes a really good point because he's saying understanding abstractions does come in handy. The question is, when do you stop? I tell this story a lot about how my wife lost her wedding ring down the drain. And my wife is a very smart person. She's got a master's degree in business and she has no problem understanding big concepts. But she chooses to ignore some, and one of the ones that she's chosen to ignore is the idea of plumbing. She dropped our ring, her wedding ring, down the drain, and it was gone. Because for her, at that point where the drain enters the sink and disappears, it effectively goes into a black hole. She's not a plumber. She has no interest in plumbing. Her mental model the way that water flows through the house is water appears at the faucet, travels six inches, and then disappears from the universe. My mental model goes slightly farther. I'm not a plumber. My model doesn't go all the way to the sewage treatment plant, but it does go about two feet underneath the sink to a layer in the call stack, if it, as it were, that my wife doesn't have. So I opened up the cabinets. I pulled the little trap U thingy. You see how my mental model doesn't include the name of that thing. So I pull out that U trap deal and I rescue her wedding ring from the black hole. And just as any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, any sufficiently abstract layer is also indistinguishable from magic. So this again brings us to that question. What level of abstraction is right? You know, I've had this conversation with my brother, and uh, my older brother got into electronics early in high school, and I probably got became technical just trying to impress my brother. But, you know, he's he stayed for a long time at the electronics level and wouldn't do software because he just thought what happened in software was foolish. But you can't do that for long. It's a software world. He's been drugged into it, and he's been drugged from the bottom up, all self-taught. Mm -hmm. And we talk about what kind of the average person knows about how things work and what he knows about how things work. And he'd talk about it and he's incredulous and he just he just says to me, he says, how do they ever debug their programs? And and I just say, well they don't. You know, there's bugs in the program because they simply don't have the knowledge to remove them or or the inclination and and maybe you could say maybe it's uh maybe it's not you know, maybe the economic motivation for making bug-free programs is simply not there. But he likes knowing how things work, and he likes making things that work. And to him, working completely is something that matters. That's just, you know, I think of it as kind of an engineering mentality. I, I've worked with a lot of engineers over the years that, uh, uh, 
you know, know more about how the computer works inside than how to program it effectively. And and they have a reputation of writing uh, what you might call kind of sloppy code or or uh, poorly factored code. You know, everything's in a big pile and it just does what it needs to do to. You know, it, it's probably beautiful a level below that. And and I I, I see that uh, you know people who are who care a lot about how their code works don't have a lot of respect for the engineers that write code. It's very empowering to know what's going on at every level. Uh, and there's lots of different levels in our software. And and my brother says, how do you how do you find the bugs if you don't know all the levels? But then I think we drift into this like. What is a bug? Is it a bug if a program is not organized as modules? At some point, it is because you can't you can't build up. You know, you debug down, but can you build up? So you need a modularity at every level, and discovering discovering that modularity means you have to understand what's what's important at a given level. And once you know what's important at a level, you can organize that level to serve the needs of what's important. And then that frees yourself to work at a level higher, or other people to work a level higher. And if they choose to work at a level higher without digging down, you know you've succeeded in some sense. But the, but those people won't be like you. I think that anybody who、uh, builds anything that's meant to be accessible, whether it's the guy who's designing a flip flop so that you can store a bit. You know, as a circuit designer, without having to figure out how to store it, you know, you buy that package and you put it in your circuit, and and you've got an abstraction. Well, that flip flop has to flip when you need it to flip, and、uh, that means it has to have characteristics. There, there is something、uh, you can check on Wikipedia called the、uh, the metastability of synchronizers, and that is a study of when flip flops fail to flip. <laughs> and and and, that, and and what you do is you get down into the analog world, out of the digital.、Uh, now, a good circuit designer knows how knows enough about metastability that he doesn't push his flip flops too hard. But you know the same thing if、uh, say you're,、um, you're 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 working at the highest level of business application and you're using powerful blocks and you stick them together and you say, well, I know this is a powerful block. But I know underneath this is a database query, and because we have this many tables and they're this big, that database query is going to take minutes, not seconds, milliseconds. And you say, if we need to do it, we could have a button and you could press it and take a minute. But you want to think twice before you do that because somebody's going to think it's broken. And that's where, you know, even with great tools, the lower level can kind of leak up to the upper level, and it really helps. To know now, you may just need to know that that query is going to take a minute. You don't necessarily need to know why it's going to take a minute, or what it's doing during that minute. What's happening on the disk head going in and out, or something? Because some guy who wrote a database optimizer tried to shield you from that knowledge, and hopefully he's done a good job. You know, so I would say I, I like to build things at, at a lot of different. Levels of abstraction. I like to go down to the lowest level and debug things with an oscilloscope. And when I build on my own layers, I get to build real lightweight 
because I don't have to insulate myself from what's going on deep down. When I build for myself, I can make uh, very clever things that use almost no parts to do powerful functions. But I, but, but I, I get away with that because I don't have to make my components so robust that when I'm working at a higher level, I can absolutely forget what's going on at the lower level. I like to think up and down. I like to debug. I like to be building something, you know, that's running on my cell phone, that's talking to a web server on my laptop, that's talking to a microcomputer, that's talking to a, a little circuit. And I like to be able to plug my oscilloscope to that circuit and touch my phone and watch all that stuff work. You know, I like to go up and down the levels and to infer what's happening. But that's because I know all the levels. It, it strokes my sense of power. oscilloscopes what yes yes he worked for tektronics and this was the place that built oscilloscopes i mean this was the company that built the building blocks that allowed people to create other computers it was huge and it's actually down the street from uh from my house and walking into ward's basement was just like walking into this wonderful computer version of the show hoarders except he was only keeping cool stuff it wasn't like trash bags and things like you see when you think about someone hoarding. It was just wonderful half-built robots and automatons and pieces of art with servo motors and oscilloscopes. And, you know, this is a guy who's got uh, a brand new computer next to a soldering iron. He can grab either one, whatever tool he needs at whatever layer he needs to work at. He can just grab it and go. I can definitely identify, though, with one thing that Ward said in, in the story there. If I go down deep enough, well, here, I'll let him say it. I, I like to build things at, at a lot of different levels of abstraction. I like to go down to the lowest level and debug things with an oscilloscope. And when I build on my own layers, I get to build real lightweight because I don't have to insulate myself from what's going on deep down. So lately, I've really been enjoying all of the lightweight tools out there that are coming out, like WebMatrix for .NET and Razor View Engine. It's just wonderful. It's so simple. Uh, Sinatra for Ruby. The abstraction isn't there, and there's not this uh, large API you have to understand. It kind of just gets you to the, the work. And I mentioned this in uh, the uh, Sinatra series I did, that I felt that Sinatra was a great framework for craftsmen in that you got to get in there and write only what you needed and write it your way, I mean, for a lot of people, that makes it better. Right. For, but for a lot of people who, who like to write code and tinker, that, that layer of abstraction can be a pain. It's a lie. They don't like being lied to. They really want to get down and get dirty. They want to see what's happening. One thing I don't want to do is relive what these guys had to go through in terms of what they needed to understand just to get their work done. You don't get me wrong. I like abstraction. And, uh, well, I spoke to my brother uh, who I've mentioned on my blog a few times 
Uh, he's a professor up at University of uh, uh, Oregon, in Eugene. Did I say Eugene right this time? Yes, it's Eugene. Eugene. It's not Eugene. Right. It's Eugene. I always get that wrong. Uh, so he's a professor of computer science up there. Uh, and check this out. This is what he had to do to log into his computer. This is a great story. All right. So it was PDP-12. You go into the lab and it had a key. And you turn the key and I turn the ignition and it would fire up because it had been shut down the night before. And when it came up, it was off. It wasn't running. And so there was an on off or there was a start switch. And uh, this is well before there were any kind of proms or any kind of read only memories. And so the, what we would do it was a 12 bit word and there were 12 keys on the console, 12 toggle switches. And you have a switch up for a one bit and down for a zero bit. And you would toggle in the bootstrap program. And, and so the, the simplest one was the two, two liner. You'd type switch settings for the 12 bit word you want and you push a button and that would enter that word into memory. And then you set the toggle switches for the next 12-bit word and you hit the switch again and it'll go into the next word after that. So now that you got these two 12-bit words in there, that's a, that's a two-line two program, two-instruction program. And then you hit this, the, the go button and the computer would launch to jump to the location where you entered the bootstrap and fire up. And if you did it right, that was a little two-line little, little two program that said, go get the first block off of the tape and load it into memory. And that would be your operating system. And it would fire up, and there you go. And how long did this process usually take? Well, since you did it every day or a couple of times a day, probably about one second. <laughs> you just knew that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but you know, you. In fact, it's pretty silly. You, those 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 toggle switches would be almost in position from the last time somebody keyed it in, so you didn't have to do too much switching around. But you just know what that. And, and it was a, a an interesting pattern. It's probably like. For some reason, I remember the 7,000s. That'd be the left left three up and the right nine down or something like that. So you just come in and you smack those things around, hit the button, and then do another little one. So a couple seconds. So how hard was it to figure out what somebody else's login sequence was? There was no login sequence. <laughs> if you had the key, you had the computer. So that's just old technology right there. I mean, using toggles to log into a mainframe, I guess I just don't see the relevance of that today necessarily, you know what I mean? Well, and that's where you get into the, like you said, the philosophy of it. Is he a better person? Like demonstrably and objectively a better person? Probably not. But how can you not want to know this stuff? And isn't that, he knows how the login system works now. I mean, I suppose I could just type in my name and my password and hit enter and just hope that some magic gnomes take my password over to the server and do it. And for all, for all I know, there was magic gnomes. But to really know what's happening there, to understand that like, the chain that's in place, to know that those toggles cause some hashing algorithms to, uh, to do some work, that's inspiration that you can use in, in your work. Just the knowing of that at your core, even if you don't consciously know it, can make you, uh, I think, a more effective program. Let's let's do some mixed metaphors here, right? You're you're standing on the shoulders of giants, sure, but I mean your crown has been paid for. You just need to put it on. You don't need to know any of the wars and the drama and the mainframes and the mini computers and the Apple IIs that came before you, right? I mean, guys like Dan Bricklin did that work for you. They fought those wars. They invented this stuff from scratch. 
mean, look what I talked to Dan last week, what he said about developing new eyes. Back then, I had to figure out what does each keystroke do. So the state diagram, if you look at it, it's some of it's on my website and it's in some books like Programmers at Work. Um, I have, uh, I think some of it's in my book, um, uh, Brickman on Technology. But um, there I had to say, if you press the slash key, what could you do next? If you press the arrow key, what could you do next? If you press the plus key, because that's what we had to figure out and that's how the system worked. On today's system, um, more you worry about what's on the screen, what buttons are on the screen, what's, what can you do, what can you drag. Um, there's some of the same stuff that I did that did not make it into the books where I, I don't have or I haven't um, shared some of my early data layout. Obviously, as a programmer, one of the most important thing is what the data layout looks like. And I was very concerned about that, figuring out how we were going to be storing the uh, the sheet to be able to fit in the little bit of memory we had. We only had about 16K or so of memory, 16,000 bytes, to be able to hold a reasonable amount of data to make this useful. So um, you had to be very compact. And uh, so I was figuring out how to do that. And I think Bob used some of my design for that. And for a lot of applications after that, I had to do the same things. I do that obviously today. I have to look at what's the data layout of how I'm doing it, just like programming has probably always been. And you decide when you click here, what can you go to? If there are keystrokes, then you do a state diagram. So it's always something like that. And I'm scribbling them down. And I actually use paper or sometimes do it on my application itself. We had to develop things like invent the ruler, uh, which you now take for granted. But in the word processor, the thing with the tabs on it and all, the embedded ruler, uh, each of us had to invent that independently to, for our word processors. So this stuff just goes on and on and on. It's part of the craft. A lot of the stuff is just part of the craft. And um, it's why some old timers will laugh at some of the youngsters who think that this is new. They think that some of the concepts are new because they were able to do it for the first time. And they don't know what people did in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So hold me Uh, a lot of that wasn't saved because, you know, the computers don't continue to run. Uh, old software doesn't always run on new computers. I've been lucky. VisiCalc um, was written for the IBM PC, among other things. It was uh, about a year or two, a couple years after it first came out. And uh, we copy protected it because that's what was done in those days, copy protection. But one of our employees kept an internal version of it that was not copy protected and kept it on one of his computers and when he left took it with him and he gave me that copy years later he was into history and i had borrowed old stuff from him and uh, he said hey i have this old copy of visical since it wasn't copy protected i could actually use it on new machines years later because the copy protection assumed certain hardware um that it took advantage of that hardware to know whether it was uh, a copy of those, the software or the original on a disk. So that version got put up, and I have that up on my website, and thousands and thousands of people have downloaded it. And so they can run what is was VisiCalc back in 1981. 
Well, apparently, Microsoft has used that as part of the test suite to see if new versions of Windows are compatible backwards. So it's stayed compatible for many, many, many years, which is kind of cool. But that's highly unusual. Yeah, Dan. Dan is amazing. I mean, don't you just feel smarter because you listen to him talk? I mean, he's he's just yep. he's just mainlining information. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that's fascinating to me as well is that well, I listened to the recording you did last week with Charles Petzold. Yeah, yeah, I talked to him a couple weeks ago. You know, about basically the same things I asked Ward. What do we need to know? He's amazing. But this is my favorite part. If, if, if you know how to take a C program and hand assemble it, and all, are you a smarter programmer? Are you a better person? Are you? Um, that I do not know. Some, sometimes it, it goes the other way, though. Uh, certainly, I was my, my assembly language programming days and my C programming days kind of overlapped. And... Once I got familiar with higher level structures in C, I started applying those to my assembly language programming. Um, I had a similar experience when I first started using, um, oh, it was, it was like the first version of, of basic for Windows. And um, seeing how in Visual Basic you would design a window of controls, I started doing that kind of thing in my, my C Windows programming where it wasn't so obvious. So I've had more the experience of, of going in the opposite direction of applying high level concepts and structures in, in lower level languages. Whether any programmer these days has the time to start off with digital design and then have a good foundation in assembly language and then move up to scale from C to C++ to C Sharp. Uh, I, 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 that seems to me um, a little too much to, to ask of, of the education system and uh, of the individual programmer. Certainly people don't seem to have the patience for that type of, of, of long learning. And it was different. It was certainly different. Um, when you're encountering these things as they are introduced into the market, when when you are back working, when the only assembly language programming you could do at home was was on the 8080 or the Z80, you encounter these things historically as as they become widespread in the market. And by the time C Sharp is introduced, you already have a, a couple of decades of background in all this. It's uh, it's a you, I don't think you want to um, necessarily take a, a young programmer and, and force them to go through this entire history of, of building up things. Because it, I, it, for those of us who actually lived through it, 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 took a, it took 20 years to get me from 8080 assembly language to, to C sharp. <laughs> that's, that's a long education. Ward likes to know the complete stack so he can debug it, but also so he knows which part he can rewrite his way. Dan basically invented the stack, 
and he did everything that he needed to do in order to get PhysiCalc to work, but he was working at a very, very low level doing a lot of this stuff in assembly language. But in answering this question, Charles is acknowledging that there's just a whole lot of stuff to know. It's probably a bit much to learn it all. This is something that many people can probably identify with. But what parts can we let go? As Rob and I are discussing, those who are unaware of the past are doomed to repeat it. And in that same way, those who are unaware of the lower levels of abstraction are doomed to rewrite it. That's what I asked Charles next. What things can the developer of today safely forget? Nothing comes to, to mind offhand. <laughs> maybe, maybe you really do have to learn all this stuff. I don't know. I, there seem to be uh, quite a few programmers who can, who, who do just fine without it. Is, 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 is that what's important? It's, well, it's important if you, if you think of, of programming in a corporate sense of, of, uh, delivering products to the market. Um, but I hope there are still a lot of programmers who, who have this interest in history. Uh, there's, there's always been a retro computing movement. Um, I'm not sure that I personally would enjoy going back to coding for 16-bit windows, um, but, but some people uh, get a kick out of it. I mean, he's doing some great stuff, and he's writing a wonderful book on Windows Phone 7. And I think what makes his book special is that he's got that context. He's got 20-plus years of Windows. Gosh, 30, almost 25, 30 years of Windows. Yeah, I know, but you'll agree that he struggled a bit when he was answering that question, what do we really need well, to know? Yeah, I mean, he seemed to be a bit of a loss. Well, I'll tell you what, one thing that struck me about the audio from Charles and from Dan and from Ward is these guys are really excited about what they're doing now. They don't really care much, or it doesn't seem like they have any nostalgic reverence for the past. They're as motivated now as they've ever been. That's really what surprised me. I expected I would be sitting down with, you know, three great uncle types, you know, maybe not grandfatherly. We'll, we'll give them the, that respect. But, you know, a, a slightly elder great uncle type, and that they were going to tell me about how awesome it was in the past and how, how much more the past influenced them, but none of them really seemed all that interested in dwelling on the stuff that they did before. I thought that they were going to give me some wisdom as I climbed the mountain all the way up to the top, and then they, they would just lay it on me. But honestly, they were excited about programming today. I'm not even sure, but I think Petzold may have been programming while I was talking Well, to like him. you just finished a book on Windows Phone. Right. Well, I'm, I'm still working on it. Almost as we speak, I'm, I'm actually coding while I'm going to be doing the interview. So <laughs> It definitely sounded that way because it took him a while to, uh, we, we asked him a question and then he came out and said it. I'm, I'm actually writing code right now. And I just love that. He's so passionate about the work he's doing. You could just tell he was wrapped up. I mean, in yeah, it. we were talking. I'm kind of hearing, I'm like, are you multitasking? Well, yeah. And look at Dan. Dan's making this new uh, application with the iPad. I mean, here, he'll, he'll tell you so about it. There's so many areas to fix. I mean, there's so many areas that are being computerized for many people for the first time that can be helped by computers um, that probably weren't as easy to do before because the hardware 
has advanced in certain ways or the price has dropped substantially so that people can take advantage of it. So, uh, for example, my, my current product, NoteTaker HD on the iPad, uh, is for taking notes you know, in handwriting and stuff like that on a computer. Now, we've had that for years. I mean, I've been doing it for years. Um, I developed an application. Uh, was, you know, I wasn't the only programmer on it, but uh, I was the company that I co-founded. Uh, Slate Corporation back in the early 90s, and we were doing, uh, you know, like a daytime or a, you know, thing for writing your your daily notes and stuff uh, that used a pen on uh, a pen computer, the um, Windows and uh, things from PenPoint, Go Computer, uh, Go Corporation's computers. And, um, but those were expensive and clunky. And um, then the um, the tablet PCs came out, and some other note-taking applications have come up on that, uh, like OneNote, which takes ink notes, which has been very popular on those machines, but those machines haven't been that popular. But finally, we have machines of sufficient size, like the iPad, uh, for taking a reasonable amount of notes. And um, that's, um, that's now possible at a reasonable price for many people, and it's becoming very popular to take notes on that. And uh, so that's kind of cool because it's now the price has gotten down. We still have the issue of the pens that work on the iPad aren't like the pens on, uh, let's say, the tablet PCs, which even then had some issues with um, with resolution. Because uh, really to do good handwriting, you need like about 200 dots per inch uh, resolution at about 200 points per second. We're not getting that on the iPad. Uh, we're getting about, I don't know, I'm getting about 60 points a second. Um, and um, at, I guess it's at a 100 or so points per inch resolution. But um, it feels like you have to write bigger. So what I do in my application is I solve that by shrinking what you write down. So even though you're writing on a small piece, what would have been a small piece of paper, I shrink it down and fit it on what would be an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper with a fine pen. So uh, you still have to solve some problems there, but it seems to be good for a lot of people, but it may not be good enough for enough people. As the hardware gets better, we'll be able to do that. There are a whole lot of other applications that will be coming up that we've been trying for years to do that as the computers get cheaper, um, we'll be able to do. So, for example, back in 1964, the public was um, exposed to something that was only in the laboratory uh, at that point, which was um, uh, video tele uh, tele telephony, where you, know, you went to the World's Fair and you could use a picture phone. <laughs> and wow. And you know, then you saw in the, the movie uh, Space Odyssey of 2001, they showed that, and uh, of course, it was expensive to use it. They even showed how expensive it cost a few dollars to make a telephone call, at least from the moon or the space station, I guess from the space station down to uh, to, to the, the ground. Um, but now we have that with Skype, FaceTime, and stuff like that, and you don't even pay for the minutes. It's so, you know, it runs on just about any netbook or laptop, and now a lot of of cell phones. So something that goes back to Dick Tracy's watch, you know, with uh, real-time video and stuff between individuals has now finally gotten cheap enough, even though we could do it in the laboratory for the last 50 years.
That is so cool. I'm literally going to go download that tonight. Man, I don't really care if it ends up being horrible. I mean, Dan Bricklin. Dan Bricklin wrote it. Well, see, it. now we've got a whole show of, uh, of us being fanboys for these uh, these guys, right? It's infectious. Yeah, it's true. You're pulling me in. I see. Now you want a Dan Bricklin trading card. I'll gladly take the Charles and Dan uh, trading cards. But uh, I think Ward's got to be up to something fun and new for me to want one of his. What's he doing these days? Ward appears to be doing things on the cheap, on purpose. I was telling him about some of the Arduino and Netduino stuff. And I was saying, oh, man, you can do this for $25. And oh, man, you can do this for $35. And then each time I talked about these amazing things that you could do for cheap, he would bring out something that was an order of magnitude cheaper. And he'd say, well, sure, you could buy that chip for $15, but I got 10 of these for a buck. And then he'd pull out a handful of chips and he'd say, and I can get them all working together in some kind of a biological system. He's putting together multi-processing computers, very, very highly specialized, uh, and building these large sensor arrays with chips that cost him pennies, pennies on the dollar. So it's so fascinating to me, again, that they're working on this very current technology. And I think each one of them has such an appreciation for what they have now because they know where they've come from. And I love Ward's point about going back into the stack, going down as far as he needs to go uh, to, to then build back up again in his own way. And so I asked my brother this question um, when I you know, was talking to him the other night. I said, how far back do you think someone needs to go in, into the stack? In other words, how deep into the abstraction? What makes sense? Listen to the story he, tell, he tells about his students learning Pascal. I, I think I'm remembering a story like when I was teaching programming languages, teaching people about Pascal. And I think the common wisdom was then to keep it pretty abstract. Just kind of, kind of say, you know, this is a local variable, this is a global variable, and just kind of tell people the behavioral attributes of them. And then one time I remember telling a group of people, you know, all right, I'm going I'm to talk about implementation. I'm going to talk about stack frames. I'm going to talk about what happens when you call and it's going to push a frame. And, and I could see light bulbs going on all over the room. It's like, well, wait a minute. Now, now, now this makes sense when you talk about a pointer from one frame into another and lifetimes and, and things and, and call by reference and all those other things that if you didn't have that understanding of the lower level, it was a little harder to explain. So I guess that, that means peel back at least one or two layers, if that makes sense. Find out what people need to know and then give them a little, another layer or two to help put it in context. That's a controversy in teaching computer architecture. Um, there are people who believe strongly that you want to teach it bottom-up. You want to teach the, the transistors and the semiconductors and work your way up from MAND gates into, you know, into registers and into memories and stuff. And there are people who say the other way around. No, let's start with the, the high-level language, the stuff that people are familiar with, and then work your way down to the lower levels. And, the people who argue the former say, yeah, people don't understand as well if you stay, stick in the abstract levels. But you really need to have a firm grounding in, in something. And I don't know where I fit on that. I just don't. It's easier to get into the field. Um, this probably is pretty easy for some people to skate by without putting too much effort into understanding what's really going on. But if you're a serious professional, you'll definitely look into it. All right. Well, that was easy. You didn't even make fun of me. Not once. Oh, no, I, I, I mention you in class all the time. And I mentioned that story about going and how, how I discovered Ruby by 
our wives and kids going off and playing on the beach and you and I up on your lanai drinking beer and hacking on our laptops and having fun. <laughs> Get a lot of mileage out of that. So if you go down those levels of abstraction, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you need to chase a single stack. I mean, if you use .NET, that's great. But one of the things that struck me when talking to my brother, and I think uh, Ward mentioned something about this too, is the tool sets that you begin to be able to use as you go deeper down, the tool sets become more and more, the options sort of explode, if you know what I mean. So I asked my brother, you know, like if he's working on the problem of his thesis today, what tool would he use? And he rattled off about three or four languages. If I need to write an application, if I need to write a program, and it's just going to be a one-off kind of a thing I'm going to use myself, um, believe it or not, I've gotten so disgusted with Quicken and other financial software. I've, I've tried, I must have tried like five different banking things, and none of them worked for me. So I just said, screw it. Sat down and wrote my own Ruby program. And, you know, keep stuff in a database and write this little Ruby program, and I'm happy. So that's a, a tangent, but that's a good example of kind of an application. It's just a one-off kind of a thing to do for myself. Um, to answer your question, the the abstractions in there, yeah, I, you know, I guess I I like the fact that the classes are easy to work with, and that you can go find libraries. The gems is, are amazing. You can just go download gems and do what you want. But if it's some serious work that I need to do with a program that I I'm worried about performance, then I don't use Ruby. So so in our our research group. We're working on a, a sequence alignment application. And this is an application where it's got at least, well, order n squared complexity. It means, you know, if you have sequences of n letters, you can count on n squared steps unless you do it right. And the biologists are dealing with sequences that are pretty long. And so this is something you don't want to mess around with. You really, you really want to pay attention to performance and, and efficiency. So that's a C++ for me. So I would, I would just use C++ and write the code that I knew would be compiled most efficiently. There's going to be people out there looking to laugh and hear that because C++, of course, isn't as efficient as C or probably even Fortran or something like that. But at some point, you got to tell yourself, all right, <laughs> I'm not, I, can't, I can't mess around in these other languages because I'll be showing nuts managing memory and whatever. But C++ is a pretty good compromise for me. Yeah, the thing that was pretty clear with each of these guys is that they would use whatever tool was awesome. I mean, they they will go where the awesome is. And sometimes that awesome is at a low level, and like Ward, and he's using small chips combined with low-level languages to get high-level systems built. Or in the instance of folks like Charles, he's using Silverlight and managed code, even though he's working on a small device. They all have the context of history, but none of them seem to let history hold them back in their tool or language selection. So I have to say, coming into this, we were going to try and reflect. We came in at the beginning of this show with a focus on finding people who knew about the past so that they might tell us about the future. What we found was three people from the past that are focused on the future. They're not worried about the past at all. So I think we came in with our heads backwards. I mean, it really makes me kind of happy listening to all this. And I guess that's not really the right word. It makes me hopeful. Because uh, when I started programming, gosh, geez, what, 20 years ago now, I didn't know that there'd really be much of a future. I mean, everybody in programming back then seemed young to me. Um, and I just didn't think, well, this is something I can do as I grow older in years and my family grows up and so on. I always just thought I'd have to do something else. But you see what these guys are doing. And not only that, 
They're working on really current stuff and they're super fired up. It's kind of neat. I think there's uh, there's a reason they're not to become a manager. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I always hear about people who can't keep up because there's so much. And the more and more layers of abstraction that, people, that come in, the more and more people get overwhelmed and they give up and they become a manager. With all due respect to the managers that are listening. But what I think is cool about these guys is that they know what to throw out and they know what not to throw out. They know what parts that they can't know in the stack and they choose to ignore it. They can overwrite those bytes in their head with new information. I doubt that Dan could write PhysiCalc today. He's overwritten those bytes in his head with new information on how to write a good iPad application. Ward has chosen to focus on some of that low-level stuff, perhaps not knowing about some higher-level things. They're all Swiss Army knives. Maybe it's okay not to be too much of a specialist. Stay excited. And if you're not excited, find something else and be excited about that. I'm ordering my geek trading cards today. I got Petzold, Bricklin, Ward. They're on order. You get Felsenstein? I have Felsenstein. <laughs> it's not a complete collection without Felsenstein. Once again, I'd like to thank the folks at Twilio, T-W-I-L-O, for sponsoring this episode. Twilio is the easiest way to add SMS or voice calls to your application. Visit Twilio.com to get started for free. In addition, I'd like to thank the folks at Embraco, a great open source CMS project. These people keep this show on the air by helping us with bandwidth costs and so on. Do me a favor, go check out their sites. They've been kind enough sponsor the show you're listening to. Once again, this is Rob Connery. And this is Scott Hanselman. This has been episode six of This Developer's Life. Thank you so much for listening.